Previously on Drive Back the Night. We welcome you to Drive Back the Night. I'm your host, Ryan Mazzocco. And I am Ethan Maestri. Ethan! I tried to warn you. What are you doing? I cannot play second fiddle to anyone. Did you bring a gun to the studio? I've been planning this for a long time. Glad I brought my knife. Did you really think that I was just going to sit by and let this happen? You know what your problem is, Ethan? You talk too much. Ethan, what have you done? I'm proud of you. The bullets aren't even real, they're just sound bites. Check, please. And now, the continuation. Some say the Commonwealth would have fallen even without Nietzschean treachery. They underestimate both the Commonwealth and the Nietzscheans. And we welcome you to another edition of Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda series podcast. I am Ryan Mazzocco, and unfortunately this week I am alone because, as you may remember, last week my co-host Ethan Maestri was killed in battle. So we're going to be going at this alone. What's up, Ryan? What? Hey. How's it going? E- Ethan? Yeah. This, this can't be. Yeah, I'm here. You... But you died. I saw you. You died in the last show. Yeah. Andromeda brought me back. Huh? Andromeda. It brought me back. Oh. Well, I guess that's enough explanation. Let's move on. An Affirming Flame. This is the second episode and really the part two episode to the first episode, Under the Night. And so uh, this really, this this concludes the, the whole opening to the whole series and we get to find out a lot more about our characters and Ethan since you're while you were dead did you happen to to find any information about this this episode this show no I did not oh because you were dead (laughs) that's all right that's all right I don't have a whole lot of notes on this show but I think we've got plenty to talk about because we really learned a lot about the characters and and just all kinds of stuff, but I guess no, really, it, it'll yeah, it, like you said, it'll be good to uh, finish this discussion of what's in the show, and then really get into what have we learned about this crew that's now going to be on this ship. Yeah, and you know, last time we saw this crew, they were um, well, there was no crew. There was there was a, a crew of basically there was a dead guy in the hallway. Yeah, there was a dead guy. Um, there was uh, there was a captain. There was a really smart uh, starship. Oh, um, oh, and don't forget the androids. The androids are still there. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of androids just everywhere. I um, hope they stick around for a while. I'm sure that they will. I mean, every sci-fi uh, series has to have lots of androids just climb, just crawling all over every place. You mm-hmm. know. Um, but we last left our uh, our show with there was a. Uh, a team of mercenaries led by one big, bad-looking Nietzsche and wielding a very large gun. So that's where we left off. And I I gotta say, Ethan, I am just dying to know what happened. Well, I'm here to tell you, Ryan, what happens. All right. All right. Uh, that big, bad Nietzschean mercenary, Tyr Anasazi, he is a very efficient killer. And he kills all the androids on the ship. <laughs> Uh, no, Tyr tears through the ship, and while that's taking place, Jarentix wants complete control of the ship, and he wants to ensure that. 
This causes tension to mount amongst this ragtag salvage crew aboard the Maru, now aboard the Andromeda. However, meanwhile, Captain Hunt has had to go Macaulay Culkin style and take on the bad guys. It's time for a little Home Alone action. And uh, he sets out to take back his ship. After some Matrix-like acrobatics, Dylan dispatches the cyborg killer lady, then proceeds to uh, cause further disruptions for the salvage team. Some of the salvage team is now beginning to think that they're fighting for the wrong side. Gerontix takes offense at this, and takes particular offense at Trance, and demonstrates it by killing her. After briefly mourning Trance's loss, and also realizing that they really knew actually next to nothing about her, they decide to take out Gerontix and his mercenary team. Hunt encounters Tyr and his goons, and after a very difficult fight, Hunt has to make his escape by using a flash grenade and gets away. Harper, in the meantime, breaks into the Andromeda's uh, PC, but uh, he doesn't stay long as Rami manifests herself and kicks him right back out. Gerontix has had all he can take, and so if he can't have the Andromeda, no one's going to have the Andromeda. He escapes on the Eureka Maru, and before taking off, he laughs his little mouse laugh and pushes the Andromeda in towards the black hole. Valentine, at this point, says, I've got a bad feeling about this. And thus is quote number one of many that we'll get from the Star Wars series. Hunt gets the remaining crew, including Trance, now back from the dead, to help him and to get the Andromeda to escape from the black hole. And Dylan's answer for escaping the black hole? 40 Nova Bombs. The universe's most destructive weapon of mass destruction. Even George Bush wouldn't have been able to miss these bad boys. The Salvos do the trick, but unexpectedly create a white hole. That is, the inverse of a black hole. A sort of mini Big Bang. But Andromeda and the Maru both escape into Slipstream. Valentine now is in a bad position, and she has to beg Hunt to help her to track down and retrieve her now-stolen ship. Hunt graciously accepts, but he's going to want something in return. After boarding the ship, Hunt and crew uh, gain the upper hand on Gerontix and eject him into space in an escape pod. What's Hunt's payment going to be for offering his help and his ship? Ten minutes of the Maru's crew's time. I wonder what he's going to want to talk to him about. Maybe a timeshare in the Triangulum Galaxy? Perhaps. The Wayist Religion? Possibly. Nope. Hunt needs a crew to rebuild the system's commonwealth. And, yeah, they're kind of into that whole three hots and a cot that the Andromeda's got going on. The end. I just gotta wonder why Dylan didn't just string up some paint cans and bash Tear in the face. Did, I, I, I totally got a Home Alone vibe <laughs> through that whole thing. I did. I really did. That was awesome <laughs> that you brought that up. I wasn't thinking that at all, but when you said it, it was like, yeah, okay, I can kind of see that. Yeah. <laughs> Good job on your recap. Okay, thank you. All right, we got to bust you on the uh, the line that you mentioned there in your recap about. I've got I, a bad got feeling about this. Yeah. Well, I kind of already hit that in the last show. That wasn't the first of many Star Wars quotes because last week, Andromeda, the AI, said it's a trap. Oh, that's right. You did say that. So, yeah, I totally, I totally ignored that. 
So, if nothing else, then we have definitely established that in that the, these first two episodes, there's a trend. One of many Star Wars references we're going to get. Uh, Dylan was not willing to use Nova Bombs in the inhabited system in which they fell into the black hole that was in the system, right? Whoa. Okay. And so now, he's willing to unleash 40 Nova Bombs... In this inhabited system, is am, am, have I stumbled onto a, a continuity issue? I'm not really sure. I guess what we need to find out is what does it mean, rogue black hole? Is okay. it just roaming around in the 300 years? Is it no longer? Did it near float out of the system? system? Did it eat the system? <laughs> well, there the, you go. Is the system not there is anymore? It, it's not inhabited because it doesn't exist any longer. <laughs> it's, it's a valid point. That being the case, how has Andromeda maintained its position? If it's going around consuming everything, everything's falling into it, how is Andromeda maintaining its position just outside? Maybe that's why the Andromeda was so hard to find, because they knew it was in a rogue black hole that was just out roguing around the universe. I like that, roguing around. Yeah. It's roguish. It's a real word. Okay. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. We're we're not even going to bother to fact check that. So first they had to find out, they had to research um, what black hole it had actually fallen into. And then they had to find said black hole. You know, Gerontex mentions that he's got tons and tons of money in research invested in this whole venture. Yeah, I I guess that, that does make sense. I mean... You you just you have to assume that it's it's left whatever system it was passing through. Yeah, or ate it. Or ate it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's something that, uh, that one of the listeners can let us know. What a rogue black hole is? Are they real? Is a is a rogue black hole a real thing, or is that just something made up for a show? I can't believe I'm going to do this, but I'm making yet another interstellar reference. I mean, a black hole just appeared. You know, you know, just appeared out there. Mm-hmm. Um, there are theories about rogue black holes. I have a book down here that I'm I can't reach, but uh, Rama, mm-hmm. uh, I, th- I believe in that book series it references uh, rogue black holes as well. I know it's been in sci-fi. Okay, well then let's let that be your homework for the week, since you brought this whole thing up. <laughs> oh, great! If nobody I didn't know there was going to be homework assignments, if nobody writes in and tells us about the rogue black holes and the possibility or, or verification of their existence and how they work, then that that's going to be your assignment is to let us know. Looks like I'm spending time on Wikipedia. Oh, it's <laughs> definitely going to be accurate. Then <clears throat> that was sarcasm. Um, did Gerontex kind of remind you of a jealous boyfriend? Yes. Yes. <laughs> if I can't have her, no one can have her. Man, that was, he basically just did the equivalent of throwing acid on a, on, on the X, you know, it was bad. There was no way to be behave. No. And, you know, you wonder if part of the speculation about why he wanted the Andromeda so badly was because they're starting to figure out, or at least suspect, that he knew all about the Nova Bombs. And that's why he wanted it so badly. Mm-hmm. But then, does he think that Dylan doesn't know how to use them against him? I, yeah. I I don't think any... I mean, the... It, 
I don't. I really don't have anything <laughs> for you on that one. So I thought this might be a good time, since uh, really this episode was just a continuation and conclusion of the first episode. Um, now we've had two episodes to really watch these characters and kind of develop, and maybe we can kind of get a feel for what these characters are all about. So I thought yeah. maybe we could throw some, bounce some ideas back and forth about who these characters are, what makes them tick, what they're all about. Yeah, I've, I've got a couple of observations, actually, about the crew. And I, I just, my my note that I'm looking back here uh, as I was watching the first episode and taking my notes, I just put down as a negative, the crew interactions seem stilted and cheesy. Uh, I, I kind of don't like Harper. In these first two episodes. I, I don't think we've ever talked about the, that fact. But yes, in these first two episodes, I don't like Harper. He's annoying. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and skeevy. And I know that's what you're going to eventually grow to love about him. But it just comes across as is not very good. Okay. As far as far as his character is portrayed in this one, there's a line I think in the first episode when they finally pull Andromeda out of the black hole. They turn around, they see the ship in all its glory, and Harper's response is, "We rule." And I'm just like, (laughs) I just it was just one of those. Oh man! (laughs) And and that's kind of how I felt about a lot of the interactions between the crew. Having said that. This is a pilot episode, and this is the year 2000. So, you know, there's a little bit of time that's passed. And looking back on it, I can see why certain things were done, certain jokes were made. You know, it, it makes sense, and I can kind of give that a pass. What's going to be nice is seeing, going forward, how these actors fill their roles and and make them better, make those interactions you know, less stilted, less cheesy, like I put down. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I have far less problem with Harper than you do. And in, in fact, I would go so far as to say that I like Harper. So from the get go, yeah, I do. Okay, I think he's, I think he's funny. I okay, I kind of have a problem with mm-hmm. Harper, but you know, we'll see, we'll see where that goes. Okay, all right. Well, well, I just, I think he's funny. He he just kind of, um, he's the one that you you don't know what he's going to say. He's clearly the comic relief of the show. And sometimes you wish he would say nothing, but he always says something. He always says something, <laughs> but that's what makes him Harper. Yeah. If he didn't say something, then yeah. you would be like, hey, what, what happened to Harper? <laughs> Did Harper die or something? What's going on with Harper? But then and he says, you know, we roll. And I'm like, oh, okay, there he is. There he is. Yeah, there we go. There's Harper. Um, <laughs> It's pretty cool. He has a data port. Um, in his neck. In his neck. That was interesting. That was interesting. I don't know for sure if that is uh, really something that's been explored a whole lot. That idea in um, in a lot of sci-fi, as far as as far as plugging something directly into your neural system. Well, I made the the reference to the Matrix in my summary. That was basically how they got in and out of the Matrix. Okay, there was that one little movie. <clears throat> yeah, that little thing that happened. I don't think very many people saw that, though. <laughs> Not in 1999 or <laughs> 98, whenever that was that yeah. came out. All right, you got me. <laughs> <clears throat> Point for Ethan. 
Are you happy? Yes. All right. I rule. <laughs> oh, I don't like you now. Um, it, it seems kind of interesting, though. Um, I wonder... I'm trying to put myself back in the year 2000. I was a year fresh out of high school in the year 2000 when this show debuted. So... I'm I'm having trouble trying to put myself back there and remember technology at the time, but I'm wondering if this show was made today in 2014 as we record, then why do you have to have a a direct link? Like, right. You know, could yeah. you could you not have a Wi-Fi adapter? It, you know, could you plug in a Wi-Fi adapter to that data port? Yeah. You know. I, I think it speaks to very much to the fact of what was popular at that time in reality mm -hmm. and, and, and Wi-Fi was just Wi-Fi wasn't, I mean, I'm sure the technology was being developed. Well, we had Wi-Fi in our school in 2000. Yeah. My, I remember my, was it my junior year and senior year? So that would have been the time periods of 98 through the first part of 2000. Um, we had the, we had the, the portable computer lab the whole time before that we all had to go to the computer lab but then the teacher could put in a request for the portable computer lab and they would bring this big cart with like 25 laptops and they all had like it looked like one of those uh, spider wrap things like that's, that's around all the packages on best buy but it was <laughs> you know and and but it, they were all they were all wireless yeah connected to the internet yeah you're right. I think it was 02 or 03, I, f I think, finally, when I got on board with the whole Wi-Fi thing and I bought the little, the, well, not little, it was a big card that you slid into the side of your laptop. Yeah, and, I still have one of those. The, okay. Well, I, I, think, I still think it was early enough, though, mm -hmm. to where, you know, maybe, maybe it was just the fact that The Matrix had been such a popular movie. It's like, well, that's a cool way of doing that. Let's let's jab this thing in the side of his neck, and well, that's how he's going to. Well, I had no idea what it was. I remember sitting there in my literature class, looking at this thing. I'm like, I know that this is a laptop. I get that. Um, well, how am I getting internet on it? <laughs> I'm like, I'm I'm picking it up, turning it upside down. It's like that scene in Harry and the Hendersons when he's looking on the other side of the wall to see the rest of the the deer's body. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm like. How is this? I, I don't. I don't get this. So maybe that you know, even people like us Let's, who were young and pretty much knew mostly what was going on in technology, we, we still didn't understand that. Well, I think as we mentioned before, in in inter, you know, having a dialogue with the the creator of the series, I think he mentions uh, in, in our interview with him uh, that this was kind of the beginning of the the cyberpunk. You know, the whole. Uh, yeah, the the exploration of cyberspace, mm -hmm. um, and that's a term that's really starting to get popularized around this time when this movie is being or this television series is getting its start. And so, yeah, I, I think the, the concepts were you still had to make it appeal to a broader audience. So I think it was probably easier to, to, to make a physical interface. I mean, we always saw that with Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Data always had to be plugged in through his finger, you know, into the, mm -hmm. the ship's computer or whatever the case may have been. It was just an, a, a way of explaining without explaining to the audience how he's interfacing. Right. And, and I think that's what they're doing here for mm -hmm. Harper. Right. And I kind of wonder if, you know, when he actually goes inside the, the computer... 
um, if that whole imagery, if if that's if we're supposed to believe that's what's actually being seen, or if that's just something to help us uh, get an idea of what's going on that he's able you to know, get in. That's there. a really good point. Um, maybe you have to have an interface like that directly with the brainstem or whatever the case may be so that it, it overrides the, the optical sensors. And that's how a person is going to interface with a PC or, or a computer or whatever that's called in the, you know, 931st century, whatever it is. Uh, maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's the way you're supposed to interface with it. Hmm. And, and it requires a much more solid link mm-hmm. rather than, you know, if you're downloading Wi-Fi and the Wi-Fi goes down like happens all the time and suddenly, you know, you're, you can't see again or something like that, <laughs> you know, that would really suck. So mm-hmm. let's, let's do a hard point. Let's do a, let's, let's, let's interface directly. Mm-hmm. That kind of makes sense. Well, that brings us to our next character quite nicely then. Um, the Andromeda Ascendant. Yeah. A starship. With sentience. It is a character. Yeah. The starship itself is the character. It's not a set. It's not a prop. It's a character. And this is a concept that I don't think at this point, uh, for this when this show airs, I don't think it has been explored at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it was really interesting. Instead of, you know, the crew on a starship, mm-hmm. and, you know, people imbue personality into a starship. Scotty loved the enterprise. It was almost a living, breathing thing for him. Mm-hmm. Now you have crew directly interacting with the starship mm-hmm. with a personality with feeling. Well, does she have feelings? We haven't really established that at all. Have we? She, she seems to, she seems to um, have a personality, some sarcasm. There's to a her. really good emulation program for it. Mm-hmm. At least that we can yeah. tell so far. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's a great concept. I mean, and, oh, boy, that goes into a whole conversation about, you know, is we're going to have this conversation a lot as we <laughs> okay. talk about this. But what is sentience? I mean, yeah. is it is is a is a computer? Is it actually a sentient living thing? Some people argue that we're all just complex computers. We're electronic impulses firing synapses and another neurological science terminology. And, and we respond to certain programming. That, exactly. You know, we're certain we're, stimulus, we're stimuli. programmed. So if Andromeda can have emotional responses, it's because she's programmed to the same way we're, dare I say, programmed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And that's a, that's a side point, and that's a conversation for later episodes. Well, we, we've, we're going to have time to come back to it, and I know there's several episodes in this first series where mm-hmm. this is going to come up again. So. Yeah. And Andromeda is directly under the control of our captain, mm-hmm. presumably our hero, right? right. Gotta be. Right. Captain Dylan Hunt. Now, what do we make of this guy? Loser, right? <laughs> he is a fine specimen of, of a man. Oh yeah, not a, not so much as tear, but we'll get to that in a second. Dylan Hunt is—I don't know what Dylan Hunt is. I, you know what? That, that that I like him, but I don't know him at all. And, and in in this episode, he really doesn't reveal a whole lot about himself, except for the fact that he is duty driven, mm-hmm. uh, and he's he's loyal. He I'm, is loyal. I'm to duty driven group. after I go to Taco Bell. <laughs> Well played. <laughs> well played. But yeah, he, he, he is, his life is high guard. 
I mean, mm-hmm. that obviously, that's what he has devoted his life to. Um, we don't really get a chance to see a lot of his personality other than to know that he's now a man out of time. Mm-hmm. And he's willing to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And he's willing to give help. Mm-hmm. And and he's going to be doing a lot of that going forward if he's going to, to uh, fulfill this dream he has of reestablishing the the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. I, I guess that that ultimately tips us off to the type of man Dylan is. He's a, he's a very big picture thinker. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he goes for the, the brass ring. We know that he's a survivor. Yes. We know he's tough. Um, we know that there are at least two Nietzscheans that we've already met that at least admire him, um, respect him, his abilities, and I got to imagine, you know, for for a, for a race of people who pride themselves on being perfect, for them to look at someone that is a non-Nietzschean and not just jump out with bad things to say about them. Um, Rade even says that he should procreate, you know, and I guess you would have to figure. Now, I'm... I'm going to make myself look bad just to prove this point. A lot of times I'll go to Walmart and look at people and think you should not procreate. Um, We've all had that thought in Walmart. Thank you. Thank you very much. Make me feel not so bad for saying that. (laughs) But, but you know, you think probably the Nietzscheans um, who spend so much time uh, working and thinking about, um, the next the next generation in their line. For them to look at someone who is not one of them and say, yeah, you're, you're, you you're a pretty your good. You're a pretty yeah. good of one of you, you know? Yeah. Um, we know that Captain Hunt is, or at least was 300 years ago, in a very serious relationship. Um, so he's yeah, not... he was getting married. Yeah, a yeah. lot of times we, we've... If we watch a lot of Star Trek, which I know that we both do, you kind of fall into this this idea that that starship captains are married to the ship, and that's it. There is no room in their lives for for romantic interests. Right. Yet we see that he has a fiance. It's it's talked about that he has this fiance that he's planning on getting married. So he seems to be a well-rounded individual. Um, he's a he's a Boy Scout. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I like that description. And then there's and then there's Tyr and oh, Asazi. Yeah, I was gonna say we've yeah. already talked about the Nietzscheans and yeah. and their mindset. Yeah. So we have the, the we have the Nietzschean on board now is Tyr and Asazi. Yeah. I do you think we should talk about Rade as well? Just just. Mm-hmm. In the fact of of how he reflects on the Nietzschean race, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think that's a good I, idea. I think we should do that. Okay, um, I I like the Nietzscheans; they're cool. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a bit short sighted though. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, I'm every like you you mentioned before. Everything is about thinking about this. Who's to come? Well, I mean. It, Rade's quote is, I'm paraphrasing and not quoting, but that the woman is the means 
the end is the child. Yeah. That's that's kind of a it's a very uh stoic way of living. Oh yeah, and that's what I that's what I pick up from all of the Nietzscheans that I've seen. Yeah. Is is very stoic. You know, they don't they don't seem to have a lot of fun. But see, the thing is, they're supposed to be the genetically uh perfected mankind, mm-hmm. right? That am I reading that right? Yeah. That's they, yeah. yeah, they're genetically engineered. They are the perfect human race. Barring the spikes, which that really seems that that would get away for certain activities, but so this is this is man perfected. How did they not carry over some of that personality, though? I mean, it just seemed like a it seemed like that's that's a, a glaring omission in the genetic soup or the genetic genetic material for them to just be. It's about reproducing, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's because of the. And, and of course, you will come to it more with tear, but you have well, and Rade exhibits it as well, the honor and things like that. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are those aspects of the Nietzschean race and culture, but uh, yeah, they just don't seem like they enjoy life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, they seem to they they come from a philosophy though, is yeah. and the philosophy is handed down from one generation to the next, and so they're they're just constantly just pounded in the head with this philosophy, you got to imagine their, their entire lives. Um, his tears, whole purpose of, of being a, a mercenary is to try to prove his genetic worth. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, he has no pride now pride being not his pride in himself, but pride, his, his clan, his yeah. family. Well, clan, there's clan and then there's pride. They're, clan is part of the okay pride. yeah i hadn't i hadn't really put my finger on that yeah just he, he's kodiak pride kodiak pride and yeah, they right. are all but extinct yeah he's pretty much one of the very last ones of the kodiak tribe and so he's he's got to prove his genetic worth uh, uh, rev bim is the one that that uh, exposits this he's trying to basically earn his way into another family at least that's how rev bim perceives it right so yeah, I mean, it's extremely important to them, and it has been for, I guess, we can assume, thousands of years. Yeah. You know, and once something is that ingrained into a society... Yeah, it sticks. Mm-hmm. And it, it it would be hard to break free from that. And, you know, the, it doesn't look like Tyr is going to, but he agrees to stay on with the crew. So... Hopefully, we'll see some changes in him going forward. Well, and it's it's got to be more more than just you know changing his shirt, <laughs> which he'll do that a lot. But that's fine when you have washboard abs like that. I suppose you're entitled to it. Yeah, you you know you're going to say about Dylan is a fine physical specimen. Mm, probably not if you put him next to tear. Right. <laughs> now, I notice uh, Sorbo keeps his shirt on <laughs> for for basically the this whole series. So. And I'm I'm going to say this with a staunch history of heterosexuality. But pretty decent looking guy. Yeah. 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 Okay. I think we can both agree with that and still maintain our you know Good convictions as men. What about Becca? What do we get from Becca? Um, Han Solo with blonde hair. Yeah. 
I yeah. mean, she literally. I mean, she she's she sasses back. She's got the the swagger, the attitude, and the whole time I'm watching her on screen for these first two episodes, I'm thinking Han Solo. That mm-hmm. was her. That was her prototype. Mm-hmm. I can almost imagine her sitting there getting prepped to play this role and watching Star Wars the first, you know, four, five, and six over and over, <laughs> and just and watching Harrison Ford saying, "That's who I'm going to be on my freighter starship <laughs> on this TV show." And she has the respect, loyalty of her crew. Um, oh yeah, very much so. I mean, they they, with the exception of Rev, Rev said, "I'm staying." Trance, um, and I think even Harper. They were interested about the idea of staying on the Andromeda and and working with Dylan, but they left the decision to Becca. They yeah. said, we will go with you. Yeah, they did defer to her. But if, if you wouldn't mind, we'd kind of like to stay here. But yeah, you're right. Ultimately, they did. They deferred to her, as mm-hmm. you say. And, you know, Trance was the one that really um, made that obvious. Let's talk about trance. Okay. What do you think about trance? Uh, I, here again, I'm trying not to jump ahead, uh, but what we have, she is a wild card mm-hmm. because as we tipped our, you know, as we, as we talked about it at the, you know, the little skit we did the first of the show, there is no explanation as to why she comes back. Mm-hmm. She, she was dead. Mm-hmm. She was dead. <laughs> And then she's alive again. And her explanation is, well, Andromeda brought me back. I don't believe her. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and so, therefore, from the very get-go, you can see she's going to be someone to keep an eye on. And I don't mean it in a bad way. I'm just, it's, there is something about her that's different from everyone else. And I think that's apparent from the get-go. And I'm not talking about the purple skin. Mm-hmm. But they're you know, or the tail, or the, t- the the prehensile tail, yes, or the pointy ears, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, if we're going to point out, I mean, we've got a furry guy standing next to her from a, that looks like a cross between an Ewok and a bat. <laughs> but she's different in that there there are things about her that no one can explain, mm-hmm. and, and we'll see if that becomes even more apparent going forward. I'm pretty sure it will. So what about the uh, the furry guy that's a cross between an Ewok and a bat? We have Rev Ben. Ewok and a bat. Who is a Magog. Oh my goodness. The bad guys. These are the terrible, fearsome, evil, terrible, vicious, terrible Cannibal creatures. rapists. Yes, exactly. That That is, if we believe what Rade said in the first oh, wait, episode. Wait, not cannibal. That he would eat. Well, they do. They They do consume their own kind, don't they? Or do they? We don't know yet. I don't. I, yeah, all I know is what Rade said. Okay. So, <clears throat> but either way, you know, these are terrible, evil people. Yes. It seems that there is some uneasiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that are in this show, in this episode, that are not close friends with him, that don't know him very well, they're like, uh, I'm a god. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, Jaren Tex is not exactly comfortable you know and they're both furry mm. but he's not yeah he's not comfortable well, you know around he's him. ferret furry and, ferret then, furry and then you've got rev bim who is yak furry 
Right. Um, incidentally, that actually is his costume. It was yak fur. It was yak. Yeah, fun fact. There mm-hmm. we go. Okay, yeah, I did not see, know that. Well, you know, it's I have some fun facts sometimes, too. Great. So, But I don't like to put them in the fun facts segment. I just throw them out there when I think of them. Okay. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, and I think it was it was it's a great character because obviously he's he's got a a checkered past. He has things that well, the, in the the little exposition that you get between the crew in the first episode where they're talking about what they're going to do with their cut of mm-hmm. of the Andromeda's the the profit that they're going to get from the salvage op. Rev Bim is going to create a facility that's going to make restitution for evils that were done at this, well, I forget the name of the place now. Kingfisher. Kingfisher, yeah. Mm-hmm. So obviously he's got a checkered past. There are things that he feels like he has to atone for. He's yeah. different than the Magog that Rade talks about. Mm-hmm. But he's still a Magog, and mm-hmm. obviously, like you like you pointed out there, the crew's uneasy with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, even, even Harper. And this is you know the crew that works together on the Maru, even at times they they still look like they're a little uneasy around him. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, this is this is going to be an inter- interesting character going forward. And he's uh, a bit of a um, takes on the role of a counselor. Yes, always uh, seems to have something to say in order to try to to guide and direct mm-hmm. uh, the others. He's uh, he's a wayist. And uh, we don't know exactly completely what that is, but it, it has some sort of spiritual significance. It, those are the people that put on the white shirts and show up at your door at the uh, at the space colony. At the, well, probably in Kingfisher and every other space colony too. They do that for like two years and then mm-hmm. they move on. They do something else. Yeah, yeah, That's, I think so. I, I I read that somewhere. Oh, okay. So I think we got a we're starting to get a pretty good idea of who these characters where they're coming from. I look forward to learning a whole lot more about them. But right now there's something else we got to talk about. At the beginning of this episode, there were some uh white font that scrolled across the screen and it read, "Some say the Commonwealth would have fallen even without Nietzschean treachery. They underestimated both the Commonwealth and the Nietzscheans." Wow. So what do you think about that? What do you take that to mean in context of the episode and what we've known, what know about what we know about it so far? Well, I, I think it's it's a it's a good observation. Most societies don't last forever, and you're talking about the common world, commonwealth that we we don't know how long it has existed, uh, even before the humans have gotten involved. But obviously, humans have been involved for quite some time. So we're talking about a thousand or thousands of years, perhaps that this Commonwealth has been established in space, uh, at some point, you know, change is going to take place. Change will happen, revolution or whatever the case may be. And so, I mean, for them to say this about, um, well, to be honest, I, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, it's obvious when it talks about some say the Commonwealth would have fallen even without the, the betrayal by the Nietzscheans. And I think that's true for, Virtually any society. We don't know how long the Commonwealth has been in existence. Obviously, it's been a long time. Because uh, even, apparently, the human involvement, you know, Captain Captain Dylan Hunt, he's, you know, it's not like they're, you know, have been there for 10 years and all of a sudden they're promoting human captains straight up into their high guard ships. You know? Right. Well, we know that, we do know from the dialogue that the Commonwealth has not been in a war for over a thousand years. Right. 
Yeah, so we're talking about a long-established society. History, our history, shows that not every society lasts for thousands of years. Um, cultures fall. Societies fall. Things fall apart. And so it, it's, you know, it, it feels like a very real statement. The Commonwealth would have fallen. Now, whether it would have happened with or without the, the betrayal of the Nietzscheans, uh, who's, who's to say? You know, I think it's interesting if we if we were to break up this quote. Uh, says, Some say the, the Commonwealth would have fallen even without Nietzschean treachery. They underestimate both the Commonwealth and the Nietzscheans. So what if we just pick that apart group by group, piece by piece? Some say the Commonwealth would have fallen even without Nietzschean treachery. They underestimate the Commonwealth. To me, that's saying, had it not been for the Nietzschean uprising, that the Commonwealth would have lasted forever. You're underestimating them to say that it would have fallen. You're... Yeah, but then you think about the, the quote that we had before. Um, the high guard, who was an extension, the military arm of the Commonwealth, they were generous to a fault and, you know, they were too caring. Uh, they, and it led to their demise. I think, you know, the Nietzschean revolt to me seems like that was the end game. Um, and it, it was, it was time for change and it, the change would have happened. Even if the Nietzscheans hadn't risen up, the Magog may have consumed it from the inside, you know, cause so it was going to be one or the other. I mean, ultimately is what it sounds like. Well, no, I I agree. I mean, every every established civilization that we have learned about. Did, did sorry, did you totally miss my reference there? Magog consumed it from the inside. <laughs> I mean, come on, surf surf it up. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, it. Obvi- the Commonwealth has lasted for for. At least thousands of years. We don't know how long in this universe. So it, I'm sure it's probably extremely optimistic to say that it would never have fallen without the Nietzschean uprising. Yeah, and, and I'm the type of person that that's too optimistic. Yeah. I mean, that's just my personal But this opinion. here, this is a viewpoint. Yes. You know, some say the Commonwealth would have fallen even without Nietzschean treachery. Okay, now this is another viewpoint that they underestimate the Commonwealth. Okay, so that's that's a viewpoint. Someone has this ideal that had it not been for the Nietzschean uprising, the Commonwealth would have lasted forever. Um, now look on the other side of that, they underestimate the Nietzscheans. Well, what does that mean? They're a perfect super race. <laughs> Their time was coming when they were going to rise <laughs> to power. And obviously they have a different set of ideals than what the Commonwealth had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm just, I'm having trouble trying to make sense of that, that the, the Commonwealth would have fallen without the Nietzschean treachery. But if you think that, then you're underestimating the Nietzscheans. Yeah. It's kind of hard to know where they're going with that. We, we take this and, and we project it in, what we're seeing in the series and what we know Dylan is about to do. 
he's about to go reestablish the Commonwealth. So, uh, I, I guess that's that's a uh, a finger pointed at those people that said the Commonwealth was going to fall regardless of Nietzschean activity or not. Mm-hmm. Dylan's now setting out to reestablish the Commonwealth. So that's kind of a that poo poos on those people that think that the Commonwealth went away and perhaps should have gone away. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think that just kind of sets up what we're going to see going forward. Yeah. Well, you know, if you look at the um, the the quotation, this one and as well as the one that we read from Under the Night, they are both from the same work, The Rise and Fall of the System's Commonwealth, written in 11942. Commonwealth year. Yeah. yeah. By this Yin Manui. This is the same work saying both of these things that... Okay, the com- the the Commonwealth was too competent, too brave, too everything. Then they're coming right back with it and saying, "Well, it would have fallen anyway." Some say so. It could be true. It might not be true. Basically, what I'm taking away from this is this historian was just dumb. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he's he's Commonwealth year one one nine four two. And when do we establish all this stuff went down? Well, Earth calendar, 5161. So the Commonwealth has obviously been in existence for at least 11,942 yeah. years. I'm thinking from, from some timelines that I've seen online and things. I think the the where this all goes down is somewhere in the late 8,000s to early 9,000s. Okay. I think. Don't okay. quote me on that. So, I mean, this is at least a couple thousand years after... The fall of the Commonwealth. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's kind of like us trying to report on something that happened, you know, two millennia ago. Wait a second. Wait a second. So, this historical uh, quotation mm-hmm. is thousands of years after what we're seeing with in, in the Andromeda series? That's what it looks like to me. Hmm. Okay, so we're we're getting a viewpoint from a historian looking back two thousand, three thousand years to the events that we're seeing portrayed in the television series. Let me let me fact check that because that changes the whole perspective. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, according to the Andromeda Wiki website, the chronology shows that the fall of the Commonwealth happened around uh, ninety seven eighty three. And um, and now we're seeing this work written in eleven nine four two. Yeah, eleven nine four two. So, you know, yeah, we're talking we're talking nearly two thousand years. Yeah, after the events that we're seeing taking taking place in the series. Mm-hmm. Well, that does, and now it makes more sense for them to say they underestimate both the Commonwealth and the Nietzscheans. So that's present tense. Mm-hmm. It sounds like both. Cultures have been, you know, the Commonwealth has been reestablished. I, that is not something I, I didn't catch that, which. Well, I neither, guess, neither had I. Honestly. You would, you would have to do research like that. What, you know, what year certain things take place mm-hmm. in the Commonwealth timeline. Yeah. And it's, and it's wiki. So. Yeah. You, you take know, it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they do a, a real good job on that side. I do know they do a good job, but um, yeah, it's a wiki. So that that's interesting. Yeah. So that kind of tips, you kind of know where the series is going. Well, maybe, I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's just an indicator. Maybe that's just kind of one of those things, just kind of a, we don't really have any idea 
uh, at this point what the Commonwealth year is. Right. Um, you know, maybe they'll start mentioning years. But that's in interesting future because, episodes. because I, I looked at those quotes in the Commonwealth year and I assumed that they were in that 300 years that Andromeda was frozen in time. Mm-hmm. That's what I assumed. Yeah. Well, I mean, it made more sense that way. It kind of did. Yeah. But, well, maybe this makes a completely different kind of whole nother sense. It does. Yeah. So it puts a different perspective on it. Yeah. But all in all, what did you think about this episode? I like it. I mean, it's, it is part two. Yeah, it is uh, a part two. And so I, I kind of take my feeling on the first, in the first episode that we did. Um, and I just kind of put, you know, stamp ditto for this one. I mean, it's, 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 it just kind of segues into it. And now we see the crew established, um, uh, everything's where it should be now as we get going. And, uh, it, I'm really looking forward to getting deeper into the series. Yeah. Well, we, when you like the part one, then it makes sense that you're going to want to see part two. And, uh, and I wanted to see part two. And I was, uh, I was, I liked the way part two went because now we have established a story. Now we've established an objective, a mission. We know what the, we perceivably know what the story arc of the show is going to be, um, what they're trying to accomplish. And it's not just going to be week to week, random space adventures. Um, there's a, there's a real mission here, something big time. So, and I look forward to seeing how that, the rest of that plays out. But, uh, you know, that's just my thoughts and your thoughts. But if you would like to get a hold of us, there are a number of ways that you can be in contact with us. One of those is our email address. Drivebackthenightpodcast at gmail.com. And we can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Our handles on both of those is AndromedaPod. We're also on Podbean andromedaseries.podbean.com and uh, we'd like to thank Age of Geek Productions for uh, helping us out here to get us started and we want to thank Tim Kimmerly also for doing the voiceover on the quotes at the beginning of the show oh jeez and if you're not we would really like to encourage you again to keep up with the shows with us watch them in advance and then uh, probably our podcast is going to make a whole lot more sense if you know what's going on Absolutely. I know that, you know, when I watch the episodes before I do a show, it does make more sense to me. So Yeah, you, you should watch them before you do the well, show. Yeah, I'm new at this. Well, we look forward to uh, hearing from you, any comments, and we invite you all to come back again next week where we are going to consider To Loose the Fateful Lightning. 